Well, this morning, um, we're going to continue our series in the book of Colossians. We are on part eight. I can't even believe I'm saying we're on part eight. Like, it feels like we just started this and we're eight weeks in to this series. And so this morning, we're talking about family life. We're going to be looking at four verses in Colossians chapter three. Um, We'll have the scripture up on the screen for you guys. But if you want to follow along um, on your phone app, or on your Bible, or however you choose, you can do that. Colossians 3, we're going to cover verses 18 through 21. And so just by way of a reminder, um, those of you who've been here week after week, you're probably going to get sick of me saying this, but I hope it takes root in our heart. The entire theme of Colossians really wraps up in two, two phrases. The first is, Paul is writing to make the point that Jesus is king. He is king. He is the king. He's the only one. There is no other. He's creator. He's redeemer. He's savior. He's all of these things. And so Paul paints a very clear picture that Jesus deserves our devotion to him, our surrender to him. And so he is king. And then the second point of Colossians is really simply this. It's almost a question. And the question is, will you make him your king? See, he is the king, but he's such a good king. He lets us choose him. Now, there is a day coming when every single knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But he gives us the opportunity to choose him and say, Jesus, will you come be king in my life? And so that is the theme of what Paul is writing about here in Colossians. Jesus is the king, will I make him my king? And then the whole rest of the book unpacks what that's going to look like. If I say yes to Jesus and I put him on the throne of my life, then chapter one tells me how powerful that's going to be in my life. Chapter 2 talks about how personal that's going to be. Jesus is my personal Savior. Christ in me is the hope of glory. And I can be rooted and grounded and grow in Christ. And then now we've moved into chapter 3 and a little bit in chapter 4 in the coming weeks. And we're going to find out how Jesus being my King is very practical in my life. It meets daily needs. And so this morning we are talking about family life, marriage, parenting, our place as husbands and wives, our place as fathers and mothers and also children. Um, As we explore this this morning, some of these things will feel very real to you because you're living them right now. Some of them are maybe future things that are coming your way. And so I just encourage you to kind of open up your heart to what the Lord may speak. And so I'm going to read these four verses to us and then I'm going to pray one more time and we're going to jump into this. So Colossians chapter 3 verses 18 through 21 Paul writes, and he just gives some very practical advice to us about family life. First of all, he begins in verse 18 and says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that this word would be life to us this morning. God, I pray that more than just hearing some practical words on a page, God, that this would come alive in our hearts. Lord, if there's something very specific and personal that you want to say to us this morning about the life that we're living right now today, God, we invite you to come and speak to us. Lord, I pray that each of our hearts would be willing to be corrected if we need correction. God, that our hearts would be willing to receive encouragement if there's a place where we've been discouraged or beat up. Um, God, I pray there'd just be even an openness to receiving new instruction that maybe we haven't heard before. 
God, that we be open to the thought that maybe we don't have it all figured out and that you have some life and truth to share with us today. And then most of all, God, my prayer is not just that we'd see some practical advice in our lives, but God, that we would understand that we are a part of your family. It's a good family. It's an eternal family. And God, that we could see our place in it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray this morning. Amen. Amen. Well, a little over seven years ago, my wife and I um, traveled to the country of Ukraine after about a nine-month process, and we brought our son Micah home. We adopted him from there. And, you know, we felt pretty equipped for the realities of the challenges that were in front of us, and we'd done some reading and some, some learning on what it would be like to bring an adopted child into our home and expected things like attachment issues and challenges along the way. Um, but the truth is, no matter how equipped we were, we weren't, we weren't ready. We weren't fully ready for the experience that was in front of us. And one of the things that became evident really quickly with our son Micah is that he was an escape artist. And when I say escape artist, I mean like literally he has an art to escaping. Um, he's smart, he's subtle, all these things. Like pretty quickly, I was in our house doing things like reversing the door locks so I could lock him in his room at night. Like that might sound really cruel, but like he'd be wandering the street if I didn't do that. I'm in the bedroom, in his bedroom, and like I'm putting screws in the windowsill so the, the window can only open that much um, whenever he wanted the windows open. I mean, this was like, okay, how are we going to keep this kid safe? And I, I felt like in a lot of ways, like, man, we're trying to create a home for Micah, and I feel like we're creating a prison for Micah. Like, <laughs> is this ever going to feel like home to him? Um, and this kid, I mean, he just was such a smart, ingenious kid. He would find ways to escape. I mean, prisoners should, like, get advice from him on how to escape from prison if they want to get out. He would be able to figure it out. And so one of the things, I, I was thinking back on just some stories and examples of this, and one thing that Micah would do is we had installed these door latches that were up at the very top of the front and back door to kind of help keep him in. And so what Micah would do... We caught him one time. We just watched him go through the whole process. When nobody was looking, he'd get a stool, one of our bar stools, and he'd walk it over the front door, and he'd climb up, and he'd flip the latch. And then he'd take the bar stool and put it back, and he'd walk away and do something else. Then the next time he'd go by the door, he'd do the deadbolt. And then he'd walk away and do something else. And then the next time, he'd do the little lock on the handle. Like, this is, what, this is a kid with Down syndrome who's like five and six years old, and he is thinking through this step-by-step -step process of what is it going to take for me to get out that door so I can go explore and who knows what all he had on his mind. And then he would go and we had a little alarm system in the house and it would just beep if the front door opened. And so the last step he would take is he'd go and he'd open the door handle and just crack the door a little bit and the beep would happen and he'd walk off. And then he would just watch to see if anybody figured out that the door was left open. And then when there was an opportunity, he'd slip out the door. Now, I can tell you, there were some things about this that made me laugh, and I'm like, this kid's pretty smart, he's pretty ingenious, like, part of me's like, yeah, dude, all right. Like, I thought it was kind of cool that my kid was this smart. But I got to tell you, as funny as some of the stories are of some of the things that he did over the years, and um, our next-door neighbors were so gracious and fun, but there was a moment one time where our neighbor who worked out of his house, he hears the toilet flush, and he comes out of his downstairs office, and there's Micah standing there in all of his glory, having let himself into their house to use their restroom downstairs, and now he can't pull his pants up. 
And my neighbor's like, I'm not sure if I should help him or if this is awkward. I just need to run next door to get Jake or what. This is the kind of stuff Micah has done his whole life and we've laughed about it. But I have to tell you, there's a very real terror as a parent. Like it was hard to have any peace because I just always felt like, is our son safe? Is he okay? And this stuff lasted for years. And we started having these doubts of like, God, is he ever going to feel at home enough in our house that he doesn't do this? And luckily with Micah, like he wasn't trying to escape because he hated it there, but he also didn't feel particularly attached to us. It's like, yeah, this place is pretty cool, but like that guy over there is pretty cool. I'd go hang out with him now. And he just, he just didn't have that sense of belonging and attachment. And it's taken a really long time. And there's still some ways where we see that. Um, and so I, I, I come to this passage and I see Jesus just giving us some very practical things. And if I'm honest, some of them sound difficult. I mean, I don't know that there's a lot of wives that just love it when the pastor shows up on the Sunday morning we're preaching on submission. I mean, I'm not a big fan of having to submit to authority. I'm a huge fan of doing what I want to do when I want to do it. You know, loving, like that sounds good until loving is sacrificial. And we look over in Ephesians when Jesus tells husbands how to love. And he says, it looks like when Jesus died. That's what my kind of love looks like. And then the word obey. I mean, there's one of my favorite words. I loved it as a five-year-old. Not. <laughs> right? O- obedience, submission, love, obedience. These are some challenging do's that Jesus calls us to as married couples and as children submitting to authority. They're tough. And not only that, there's not just some practical do's that he gives us. There's some don'ts that he gives us. Don't be harsh. Don't provoke. Don't discourage. That's some of the terminology he's using. Man, I just, I read that list and it sounds difficult to me. It sounds like something that's really hard to do on my own. And and usually when I come to a list like this in scripture, I'd love to think that I could read it and go, oh yeah, here's all the places in my life where I'm doing that. And maybe there's some I'm growing in, but often where I go is I remember the recent stories where I didn't do that. I think of the moment when I got irritated and harsh with my wife. I think about the moment where I got so frustrated with my kids that I'm not just correcting them for their benefit. I'm just annoyed and it made my life difficult and now I'm discouraging them. And I'm, I'm aware of those realities in my life. And so, so why, is, why is Paul writing to us and giving us these, these practical things that we can do and, and walk out in our relationships. Why is this here? What is he teaching us about? And what we need to remember, first of all, is this is building on the other parts of chapter three we just read and last week. And one of the themes over and over again at the start of chapter three is unity. This idea that we are all a part of a family. We are all a part of a body. And in that body, God's heart for us is unity. And so when I read things like we get to experience love in our community, peace in our community. It sounds great. It sounds awesome. And in my friendships, I can experience that stuff. You know, I go hang out with Alex for an hour or two, and it's like, man, yeah, we can have some peace. We can have some joy. But the unique thing about family is I can't just say see you later after an hour or two when I'm kind of tired of being patient with somebody, or I'm kind of tired of loving on somebody. Now I'm ready just to go home and be myself. And see, at home, I'm forced into the reality of 
my wife's face is going to be there when I go to bed tonight and it's going to be waiting there when I wake up in the morning. And at my worst moments, I'm going to be face to face with my wife, with my kids, with my parents. God places us in family to teach us how to walk in unity because we cannot escape from the reality of our parents. And in the very same way with Micah, where it's like, hey, buddy, we're going to put some things in place here where you're not going to be able to escape. This is your family. And this might be tough for you to adjust. And it's going to be tough for us to walk this through with you. But this is, this is your family. And this is where you belong. And this is home. And so God calls us into things that are difficult, that, that challenge us, that'll get frustrating at times. You know, wives, like, I'm not going to tell you that it's going to be easy to submit to your husbands. Now, I think it's important to say that God doesn't call you to be the slave to your husband and just every little tiny thing, massages feet every night or whatever else he may want you to do. But there's going to be some very real things that your husbands are going to ask you to do at times or say, trust me in this. And sometimes it'll feel nice to submit because you like the decision he's made. And sometimes it's going to be stretching and difficult because you're not on the same page. Husbands, there's going to be times where you would love to let your wives know this is exactly what we're doing and it's because it's what you want. But the truth is loving your wife well involves sacrificing yourself and thinking what's best for her, what's best for our family, what's God saying in this situation? I might really like this idea, but God's saying, no, you need to do this and make this decision. And why make a decision in sacrificial love for my wife? As, as children, there are all kinds of times where we have to obey. And I realize I'm talking to a room full of adults. And uh, I, next week, we're going to talk about relationships like when we have employers. That would be a more current example of being under somebody else's authority and having to obey and follow through with somebody you might disagree with. But as kids, we, we had to learn how to obey when it wasn't easy, when it was difficult, and trusting that the person in charge was looking out for our best interests. And so there's all these practical things, and Jesus places us in family. He places us in community so we can learn how to walk in real unity. Here's something important to realize, and I don't think I got this for a long time when I first got married. We do not naturally start out united we live in a fallen world. We actually start out in disunity. We start out as selfish individual people living for ourselves. Unity is a miracle that Jesus can do in our relationships when we invite him in and we begin to learn to come united together. He says the two shall become one flesh. That's Jesus' description of marriage to becoming one flesh. And I think there is the reality of making that commitment and making that decision on your wedding day and God makes the two one. And then I think we spend the rest of our lives on this earth together learning how to actually become one. And so through this process, Jesus is inviting us into learning about unity. See, his life, life in Jesus sounds kind of upside down. It sounds upside down. I submit and I serve, and what that's actually going to produce in my life is freedom and love. That doesn't sound right. It sounds restrictive. It sounds difficult. But I'm trusting that his way is better than mine. I'm trusting that the unity that he is offering is going to be exactly what I need. And if I'm willing to walk in such a way 
that the practical parts of life that stretch me, that hurt, that are difficult, that what it's leading towards is a life of freedom and unity and love that we've never experienced apart from being in that family unit. And so that's what Jesus makes available to us. Now, when, when the scripture talks about unity, God has a perspective on unity. He is our father and we are his kids. And there is something very specific that he longs for and hopes for us as his children. And the psalmist talks about this. Uh, David writes in Psalm 133. It's a really short psalm. It's three verses long. And the, the first verse begins, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. That's God's heart. When he looks down at his kids and sees them living in unity, he's like, man, that is so good. It's such a blessed way of life. They're happy, they're fulfilled, and I'm feeling great. And then the scripture goes on and it gets really weird. Like if you're sitting here this morning as an American living in the year 2016, it should sound really bizarre that right after talking about unity, David writes and says these words. It's just like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Does that sound weird to anybody else? Like when the scripture tries to use illustrations, and I'm now living thousands of years later, that illustration is like, what in the world? This sounds bizarre. Are you talking about some sort of like, Beard bomb? I mean, I've seen that beards are kind of coming back these days. Like, like, what is he talking about here? It's so strange. And then he goes on, he talks about this mountain. Verse 3, it's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. You know, it opens up so positive, right? It opens up, it's good and it's pleasant when we dwell in unity. It closes with this blessed life that lasts forevermore. And sandwiched in between is this bizarre imagery. And so I, I kind of want to help us understand what's happening here. And I think the first thing I could say, this might sound like a weird analogy, but for them sitting there hearing this, the closest thing we could maybe relate to in our culture is if I said to you, the unity that family can experience, it's so good, it's like Christmas morning. It's like old St. Nick came down the chimney last night. And all the goodies are left out for us and the presents are there and the celebration is happening and it's like, it's Christmas morning, there's life, there's joy. You know, it's weird. We don't think it's strange that a guy with a big white beard and a red coat is bringing joy to us on Christmas. Can we see that somewhat of the connection there? Am I, is this too far of a stretch for us? That's, that's kind of the analogy. He's like, imagine Christmas morning. There's joy, there's festivity. It's like the one day where all the, the relatives get together and yeah, they don't talk all the rest of the year, but on Christmas, we'll pretend like everything's okay and give each other a gift. It's kind of like that. That's what he's saying. And now in a very practical way, he uses this picture of oil and Aaron standing there. And so I, I want to help you see this. First of all, oil throughout scripture, anointing oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. It's a picture of God's spirit. And what people would use in the scripture, what we would see oil used for is two things. Number one, it was a symbol of identity. If somebody was being made the king, they would anoint his head with oil. It actually represented this guy is stepping into a new identity as king. The second thing that we see oil used for is the, the New Testament gives the picture when you're praying over the sick, when someone is in need of healing, that the elders take oil 
and anoint them with that oil and pray over them. And so the picture of who the Holy Spirit is when we see oil, the picture is the identity that he gives us and the healing that he brings. Identity and healing. You guys with me? Okay, now, so who is Aaron? What, what is this guy with a beard and a robe? This is weird. Okay, Aaron is the very first high priest in the scripture. He's the very first one. And so this imagery is like, imagine the greatest high priest ever being covered head to toe with identity and healing. Now, who is the great high priest of which Aaron was just a picture? Jesus. Jesus is the perfect high priest. Okay, are y'all still with me? Jesus is the high priest. The oil represents the Holy Spirit who brings identity and healing. And now what are we? Now that Jesus has come and given his life for us and he's returned to heaven, one of the things that scripture uses to describe us is the body of Christ. And so the picture here of unity that God is giving is he says, listen, I love it when my family is in unity and I actually provide for them what they need to have unity. My Holy Spirit comes and washes over, covers the entire body, all the different members, we're different parts. Thumbs, fingers, eyes, noses, we're all different parts of the same body. And he says, my spirit comes and he helps you stand in your identity as being a part of the family. And he brings healing. And all those places where there isn't unity, the Holy Spirit can come and help bring unity. That's the picture. And the picture of the mountains, mountains always represent kingdoms in the scripture. And so God's saying, this is what my kingdom is like. My kingdom is good. It's pleasant. I give you what you need so you can walk in unity. See, what Paul is writing about can sound impossible in the book of Colossians there until I realize two things. Number one, I'm not on my own. I don't have to try really hard to submit. God's Holy Spirit comes in my life and helps me to submit. He gives me the very things that he used. Jesus submitted to the Father. On the night he was betrayed, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane going, God, is there any other way? Yet not my will, but yours be done. That same spirit comes and lives in me and helps me to submit. As a husband, trying to love my wife sacrificially, that can feel tiring. That can feel exhausting. It can feel like I'm, I'm never getting to do the things I want to do. I'm having to give of myself. But then I, the one who gave of himself for us comes and says, I'll help you. I'm in you. I'm with you. This is your identity now. And I can give you the strength to do what you can't do on your own. And so because of the presence of God in our lives, we have the strength that we need to do what God's calling us to do. He brings the healing into our lives that we need. You know, if we were to go around the room, and thankfully we're not going to do this this morning, but if we were going to go around the room and just start asking questions about the family experiences that we had growing up, we'd hear a lot of different stories. And my guess is at least somewhere in every story, there's going to be some brokenness. There's going to be some places where we didn't get what we needed in some ways. Even the best earthly fathers, I have a great earthly father, even the best earthly fathers fall short in certain areas. But the power of God is that he comes as the perfect father and he begins to provide what we missed out on. He begins to heal what got hurt and broken in our lives, in our families that we grew up in. And then he helps us to become what we can't be on our own. He helps us become loving husbands, loving wives, 
children who can say yes and, and follow and obey. He gives us the ability to do that because his presence comes into our lives to strengthen us. Okay, I want to kind of kind of wrap this up with a story, um, and hopefully we can just we can kind of see the invitation that's in front of us here. So last week we we referenced a little bit the story of the prodigal son. I think many of you guys are familiar with that story, right? This younger son leaves and runs away and wastes everything and lives this lavish lifestyle, and he returns home, and the father celebrates his return and embraces him. What may be less often considered is that there's another brother in the story and on the surface he appears to be right at home but the truth is the older brother is just as lost as the younger brother and so we're going to read a few verses from this story and see the invitation that the father is calling this elder son into and so in Luke 15 verse 28 the younger brother has already returned home the party has started to celebrate his return and the, younger, the older brother has heard about this. He's outside in the fields. He heard about the party going on that his younger brother came home. And it says this in verse 28. He was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. And so he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, isn't it amazing how quickly your sibling isn't your sibling when they annoy you? This kid of yours came. He has devoured your livelihood with harlots, and yet you killed the fatted calf for him. And the father says to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. See, the father is pleading with the son, come join the party. Come be a part of the family. Come experience the unity that's available. But this elder brother feels removed and distant from the family. He talks to the father like the father's not even really his dad. He doesn't say, dad, we never had a party together. He said, you never gave me something so I could go have a party without you with my friends. And then he's like, that's your son, not my brother. He's distancing himself. He's removing himself from family. But the father reminds him of his place. He calls him his son. Son, come back into the party. And he reminds him, son, that's your brother. And it's right that we celebrate your brother's return. We are going to have experiences our whole life in our marriages, with our children, and with our parents where theirs have been a prodigal. Maybe we've been the prodigal. Maybe they've been the prodigal. And there's going to be opportunity for the person who's done wrong to come home. And the question is, are we going to receive the invitation of the father to experience the reuniting of family? When, when the other member has wronged me, do I run like the father to forgive? Or do I stand cold and outside and refuse to come in? That's the choice that's before us. We're going to be wronged and we're going to do wrong. It's going to happen. Thankfully with Jesus, it can, we can grow into glory and glory and maybe that happens less and less, but we are going to have opportunity where we've been wronged and we're going to have opportunity where we have wronged. And the question is, will I run like the father and embrace or will I stand outside and refuse the invitation? 
I want to close with this verse. Psalm 68, verses 5 and 6. It talks about God's heart and bringing us together into family. And it says that he's a father of the fatherless. He's a defender of the widows. In fact, God is, God is in his holy habitation. That word holy, it just means special. It means sacred. It means wonderful. Habitation means dwelling or refuge. God has a special refuge for those who are disconnected. And then he goes on and it says in verse 6, God sets the solitary in families. And he brings out those who are bound into prosperity. But the rebellious dwell in a dry land. At the end of the prodigal son story, we know where the younger brother ended up. He had been rebellious, but he came home. We don't know how it ends with the elder brother. The story finishes there. It's left with a question mark. And that same question is in front of us today and every time we have an opportunity to forgive. Will I choose to stay outside where the land is dry? It's actually a picture of a desert. Or will I come in? Will I allow the perfect father to make a home for me, a space for me where I can dwell in unity and receive the life that he offers? We are a part of the family of God. That's our place. That's our standing. Will I say yes to him? And as I walk out my relationship with my spouse, with my children, with my siblings, with my parents, will I let God teach me more and more how to walk in unity? That's what's available to us today. You know, he says there in the story that the bound move into prosperity. And it's been incredible to watch. Something has shifted in Micah over the last year or so. We, we really felt last summer like something clicked. Like he acts like he belongs here now. And there were, there were areas of how we had to approach things with him where it felt like he was bound. But the goal was to move him into a place where he experienced the prosperity of being in family. And he's stepping into that more and more. It's exciting to watch. I love it. We had to love him like that long before we saw the results. And for many of you, there might be some relationships that are really challenging right now, that are really difficult. And you're going to have to learn how to love and sacrifice for the person long before you see the results of the unity that God wants to bring. But he'll give you what you need to walk in it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for what we've sung about your goodness this morning. And we thank you for what we've seen in scripture about your goodness. God, I pray that we would recognize that the day-to-day the -day life that we live, the people that you've put in our lives, the family that we're stuck with, God, that there's a beautiful reflection there of the family of God that we are a part of with a perfect father. God, that we would remember we're in a marriage right now. We're the bride, Lord Jesus. You're the groom. You describe us that way in the scripture. And you tell us that you love us and you sacrifice yourself for us. And you paint a picture in the scripture of the bride getting herself ready for her wedding day. God, you also tell us that we're your kids. And you've placed in us the ability to look at you as our daddy, to recognize that truth. And so, Holy Spirit, I just want to pray that you'd come in my life and in my friend's life this morning. That you would help us to step into the identity that we have as belonging to the family of God. And that Holy Spirit, you begin to bring the healing in our lives that would enable us to walk in unity with each other. God, I pray over every marriage represented in this room, God, that you would bring life to that marriage, that you would bring healing to that marriage and strength. 
Jesus, that you'd be right in the center of those relationships. The God, that you give husbands the strength to sacrifice and love the way you love. God, that you give wives the ability to submit the way you call, call all of us to submit to you. Lord, I pray for the children that are represented in this room. God, that for those of us that are kids with parents, God, that, that we'd be able to walk in an honoring, obedient relationship. And Lord, those of us that are parents, that you give us the equipment that we need not to be harsh or discouraging with our children, but to help them walk in obedience for their benefit, not just so our life is easier. God, we love you. We need you. These are hard things, but we thank you that we don't do it on our own. And Lord, we choose to believe that even when it's hard in our family life, that the end result of what you're producing is glorious, that it is good and pleasant to dwell together in unity, and that you command an eternal blessing when we begin to step into that unity. We love you and we need you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.